Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Movember Radio. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly conversation with one of the people from the Movember community, a community of more than 5 million men and women around the world who are passionate about men's health. And we talk with one of those folks each and every week who is passionate about changing the face of men's health. To listen to old episodes, MovemberRadio.com. You can subscribe in the podcasting app of your choice and find us on Facebook by searching Movember. Now, in this episode, the first episode of Movember Radio, Radio for 2016, we revisit a conversation from last year with actor and Mobro Dom Purcell. Now, this is the time of year when many of us think about what we want to get out of the year ahead. It's also an opportunity to reflect on the previous year and the lessons that we've learned. So, in this episode, Dom Purcell shares how he has struggled with anxiety, depression, and alcohol over his lifetime. Best known for his role as Lincoln Burroughs on Prison Break, amongst many others, Dom's on-screen persona is as tough as you can get. Underneath that tough exterior is a man who's had his own struggles. Dom reveals how, in this conversation, that by opening up and taking action, he was able to take control of his life and thrive at the same time. I'm going to tell you, though, there is some strong language in this episode, but we left it in. Because we felt it was a reflection of the open and honest conversation that went on between myself and Dom. So, enjoy. Hello, Dom. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Where do we find you today? Um, God, I'm in, uh, where am I now? I'm in Venice. Venice Beach. In California. California. Yeah, it's great. I love it. How, I um yeah I surf I um I hang out a lot at uh, you know being an Australian you you need you need to be near the water and stuff and just like to surf and just chill as much as I humanly can. Right. How far away is where you are right now from where you grew up? Like both physically and uh, I guess you know metaphorically. It's uh it's a fourteen hour flight from here directly across the ocean. So what are we looking at? I don't know. I've never actually worked out how far it is, but. It, it feels a long way. It feels a long way. And we're just saying, you know, when you, was, when you brought up things like Bronte and Bondi and Maruba and places like that, it's just bring, it just brings back just, just, just really great memories, like beautiful memories. Yeah, I'd, l- I'd like to talk about that. You, uh, but firstly, you, you were born in the UK and you, your parents moved your family out to Australia when you were very little. 
What did your father do for work back then? In the, uh, I'm guessing this is the early seventies, mid seventies. Yeah, early seventies. Dad was uh, Nor- uh, Nor- he was Nor- Norwegian, and um, he he was in the uh, Norwegian Navy, and um, he met my mother in um, Liverpool, and she's Irish. They fucked and had me, and then uh, <laughs> then he decided to go to Sydney, and um, he he quit the navy and installed air conditioning ducts in the very young skyline of Sydney. And uh, so I grew up in uh, Bondi until I was about six or seven, and then um, they split. From there, we uh, moved to um, Penrith. And I grew up... Um, Which is about, west. hang on, let me just say, that's like maybe 20 k's and 40 years west of the beach. Exactly, man. It was a... I, as I said, I was, I was a six-year-old. I, I had been six, seven. I was playing in the water ever since I could remember. Then all of a sudden, that was taken away from me, and I was surrounded by pubs and barren land. It was, it was kind of heavy. But I would make... We would go to the beach every, every weekend, and my nan used to live in Bondi, and... So we'd, I'd spend, the, you know, the grass hill on the, the north end? Yes. I grew up on that, basically, and uh, the baby pool and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, yeah, it just brings back just, again, just great, great memories. I spent a bit of time around Bondi a little bit later than that in the early 80s, 81, 82, but I certainly yeah. remember, you know, seeing, uh, first becoming aware of men that weren't in my family, like not my dad, not my brother, and just seeing how completely different they were to any man I'd ever seen. Do you remember right. that? I do, I do. I remember, um, I remember just the physicality of that, that Aussie stereotype being so true. You know, you, you see the commercials, you see the air. Remember Max Walker, the Aragard yeah. commercial? Um, don't forget your Aragard, Mr. Walker. You know, that, that iconic big bronzed Aussie dude. Um, you know, you see them, they're lifesavers. I mean, that, that's what they are. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, and because I didn't have a, my, my dad split, you know, it was all, I was always kind of, in a way, kind of, you know, on a subconscious level, always looking for a, a dad kind of role model, a dad, a dad figure, you know, so it was, it was all very, um, all very interesting. And there's certainly a lot of machismo back then. I know it doesn't happen now, but back then there was certainly, I guess you could only call them gangs of people who were hanging up the north end, very different from those who hung at the south end. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I'm 45, so I was born in 1970, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s in Australia, and basically they were, they were my formative years, and um, I did what every Australian guy does, you know, you get drunk, you get into a fight, you surf, or if you live by the beach, or whatever you do, it's just like a rite of passage, it seems, for most Australian um, men, and um, I did all that kind of stuff, and you know, um, I don't regret any of it, <laughs> that's for sure, I had so much fun. um so was was that what what high school was like was uh was it was it that kind of stuff as well before you got into the drinking yeah i mean yeah high school was funny uh i went to ironically i went to a a school called saint dominic's college in kingswood christian brothers school and you know just thinking about how things have changed you know back then the whole the whole the whole vibe of society has completely changed you know well, I went to a, I went to a Christian Brothers school as well, and I think I was the last generation where uh, a fifty centimeter steel ruler over the back was uh, okay if you weren't doing what they were I telling know. you. Like I look back on that now, and it's just like <laughs> if that fucking happened now, I mean, there'd be lawsuits left, right, and center. I mean, we would have competitions to see who could get six of the best. And uh, I mean, I remember. I mean, 
thinking about it now, I have images ingrained into my brain of, uh, I won't call the teachers out, but I can still remember their names. I still know exactly what they look like. And man, just getting the strap, the leather strap on your hand, like just, just the viciousness of it and uh, how back then you were allowed to do that. And it's just crazy. Like it would just wouldn't happen these days. No, not at all. Nuts. So when you when you got out of high school, and I know what it's like to go to one of those high schools. It's very much uh, you've got to do well. You've got to go to you know university. You've got to go and do only a very small number of courses. Otherwise, you're not probably going to be a good person in, in in the world. Was that similar to you? Certainly, that was that was part of the the philosophy that um, was taught. You know, you, um, with all of us, um, you know, you do the standard thing. You go to college, you go to university, you become this, you become that. Um, absolutely. But I was a bit of an anarchist. I've been an anarchist my whole life. Always been a rebel. Always kind of really gone against the grain of stuff. And I kind of knew pretty much that I didn't want to go to college. I'd had enough. I mean, it made, didn't make any sense for me. I'd already spent 12 years. Why the fuck would I want to prolong it, you know? And uh, all I wanted to do was cut grass and uh, just be a, uh, a landscape gardener. Uh, that's all I wanted to do, seriously. And um, the whole acting thing was more or less accidental. Well, so you're out there, you're, you're doing manly man work, you're sweating yeah. under the brutal Australian sun. Yeah. How does that become acting? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to know the story? I want to know the story. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I was dating a model at the time. As you and, do? Uh, as you do. I was very lucky, very fortunate. Ladies love a tradie, Dom. <laughs> they fucking do, mate. They really do. Um, no, uh, yeah, so I was landscape gardening, and um, I picked her up from a casting. She was in a casting room doing, you know, just for as models and actresses do. They go in there, just, and actors go in there and see if she get the job. And I was waiting in the waiting room reading a magazine, and the casting lady came out and, Said, is uh, that your boyfriend? My model, my model girl said, yeah, it is. And she said, well, he has the perfect head for a cigarette commercial. <laughs> and swear to God. And uh, she invited me back into the room to just introduce myself to the camera. And um, I did. And then two days later, I got a call saying, you just picked up this commercial. And uh, it was 50 grand. I, st- I remember that 50 grand for a week's work in Malaysia. And I'd never been on a plane. I, was, I think I was like 19 or something like that. And from that point on, it was like, okay. I want to be rich, famous, and I want to get laid. I mean, that was completely my motivation to become an actor. I, I'm not, not exaggerating, not, not going for laughs on that. That was the reason I became an actor. It was all accidental. And then, you know, then I got into the great drama schools. And then at some point there, I really started to take what I did, my craft, acting, whatever you want to call it. I took it very seriously and I had a great passion for it. So who was the first person that told you you know, when you were in that school, when you were uh, going to that college, eventually you did go to college, and when, when you were there doing yeah. it for acting, something you really wanted to do, who was the first person that went, you know what, Dom, you, you could probably make something of this? Well, I think the first indication was um, the second year. I mean, to, let, let me preface it by saying that my whole life I've experienced heightened anxiety and, you know, in and out of depression a lot. I've experienced that my whole life. And so drinking for me became a, a, a nirvana, a great escape for me. It was self-medication, absolutely. I loved looking forward to Friday and Saturday nights and just getting smashed and recovering Sunday. And so I've been dealing with mental illnesses before I even got to drama school. 
Um, Did you know what they were, or was it just you were no, just a little they, edgy? They were, I mean, I, I had my first panic attack when I was um, 17, and um, I just remember waking up freaking out, like crippled with fear, and I had no idea why. And um, back then, and when it happened, as I said, I was a 17-year-old, and you know, that kind of stuff wasn't talked about in the media so much, especially around men. Um, all I knew that I just couldn't go to school for those three days for some reason. And, and then as quick as it came, it left as well. So I was like, huh, that's, that was fucking weird. What the hell was that? Anyway, I'll just get on with my life, and I did. And then the next one came when I was in drama school. And um, this was a lot more severe for me. It was, um, it was kind of, I wouldn't call it a nervous breakdown, but it was something I just couldn't cope with a whole lot of stuff. Um, and I couldn't really articulate it at the time. Um, but I left drama school and um, they had a policy at drama school whereas once you left the school you couldn't come back you couldn't you know you weren't allowed to um, and so I took the year off and at the end of it I really wanted to um, kind of come back and uh, they made an exception so in answering your question it was I can't think at that kind of point I remember Lyle Jones the dean of the school um, allowing me to come back and I was the first one to ever um, come back allowed to come back and because of that, because of their generosity and whatever, I kind of learned a lesson in completing something for the first time in my life. Before that, I'd always quit stuff. You know, I was a pretty good athlete at school and could have done this, could have done that. And, but I quit all, my, all the sports that I did and just didn't have the mental discipline. And uh, in hindsight, a couple of years after I'd graduated from drama school, became very aware that... Um, that was a blessing in disguise that I actually got to finish something. And, and since then, you know, I've been very um, resolute, very steely in my determination. And that was a result of that. You, met, you mentioned that you took a year off. I mean, is that the point where you started taking the mental illness seriously? Yeah, the mental illness thing, the, that was, um, I don't know how, I mean, I'm, I'm very open about it. I mean, it probably was a nervous breakdown because I, I went back to my my mother's place and I basically sat in my room for three months and oh. just didn't want to didn't want to deal with the world that's depression man that's heavy yeah okay yeah so it was, yeah depression absolutely but the horrible thing was I, the horrible thing about it was I didn't know what I was depressed about I just knew I didn't want to be part of the world oh, and um, so you know so uh, I did that and you know and and then I for some reason I started coming good again before well, long I was I was functioning and you know, and it was, yeah. So it was at that point that I started to, to take my my condition seriously, and I, I, I you know, I sought knowledge. You know, so I went to therapy, um, sought out psychiatrists, and and then I started to really kind of study myself and look into myself and tried to explore what the hell was going wrong with my brain. And from that point, you were still a young man, and you know, judging by, you know, when you told us you were born, that was still something that wasn't really talked about, certainly in the society that I remember growing up in Australia. No, no, no. And, you know, no, no, it wasn't. You know, especially the, uh, if you look back, the school that I went to, I mean, went to an all boys school, you know, it was very macho, it was footy, cricket. There was, there there were no, no moments of um, uh, periods of uh, reflection. For young dudes, I mean, you just don't do that shit. So who do you talk to? Well, you talk to your mom, I suppose, and she looks at you like, what are you talking about? You have a beautiful life. I'm like, okay, all right. And that's about as far as it went, you know. And um, so you had to kind of work it out yourself. I kind of muscled through and did my thing, you know. That muscling through only works for so long, man. It does, man. It does. And then um, when you start muscling through, 
you either um, survive or you don't. And uh, for me, it became all about, uh, you know, alcohol and drugs. And that they, they became my, um, really became my escape. And, you know, and my, my dad, too, once my dad and my mother divorced, you know, he kind of went out of the picture when I was about seven or eight. That was about the last time I saw him. You know, in, in the intervening years, I've learned a lot about him. He, you know, he also suffered a lot of depression, anxiety, and a lot of stuff. And he was a chronic alcoholic and, and later uh, died of the disease because he grew up in that, he kind of grew up in that, uh, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, Norwegian Navy. I mean, fuck, it doesn't get any more brutal and tough. You know, and I still remember, um, maybe some of your listeners or people listening into this or whatever, some of the locals at Bondi um, would remember the Astra Hotel sits on the corner it's on the big um it's opposite where james packer lives right now and uh i remember clearly like it was yesterday um the south end the astra hotel and i'd sit there with my dad and my younger brother with all the um with all the maoris he was really good friends with all the the local boys and uh, i'd watch my dad get the fights you know and and not really think too much of it you know so that was kind of the guy he was, you know, um, that was his outlet. And I kind of followed in that kind of, uh, in those footsteps for a bit. And later on, I obviously I'm so I'm sober now and I have been for 11 years and I have four beautiful kids. And I, you know, I, I think I'm a better version of what I was. Um, I certainly by, I don't have all my shit together. There's no way that's, you know, it's, it's impossible. I mean, I'm a human being. I fuck up it on a daily basis, but I think I'm, I just think I'm just much more aware of it now. You know, I just, uh, yeah. A lot of guys, when they when they think about their drinking, um, they think about, well, I know the drinking part isn't really working, but I'm just terrified of what happens if I stop. I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I'd go out. I don't know how I'd go to a party. And so they keep going. Yeah. Um- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, it's true. I never had, I didn't, for me, it was when I, what would they talk about? I'm in the program AA. So basically in a roundabout way, once you hit bottom, it's kind of, you don't really have a choice. So I, I hit my bottom and, uh, you know, um, 
it was it was a it was just a horrific gnarly situation and after that i i just couldn't i just couldn't really uh deal with the consequences of my actions anymore so i so i got sober and the the hard, the hardest thing about me being sober was i mean i just love to fucking drink and i love to party and i love to i had to slowly um walk away and all my drinking buddies would kind of disappear and whatever and and after a while i started getting a whole different different kind of group of friends and mates you know they were all just dudes who kind of who had experienced similar things to me and you know i'm not saying that i don't have friends that do drink i do but um the core my core friends these days are people that kind of are in the same kind of position as i am and there's just so much love and support in that uh in that community could you talk a little about how important it was having conversations about what was going on when you were in that those first few days and and weeks after you had to make that shift yeah you know people experience um life or they experience they experience terror in different ways fear fear is a relative thing some people experience it in such a way that it it incapacitates them some people experience fear where they can function and move forward in it I got to the point where I couldn't function anymore with the fear that I was carrying around, which was the precursor to my heavy need for drugs and um, alcohol. So I knew that if I didn't do something about the, the alcohol and the drugs, you know, there wasn't much hope for me. And I couldn't really sit down and talk to my fellow drinking buddies about that stuff. I would try to get into it with them and they either wouldn't really open up too much about it. They didn't want to know too much about it. They certainly didn't, like, um, you know, cast me aside and say, you grow up. It was once I got sober and I went to those meetings and I, and I, I was able, I started to really learn to open up and talk about shit rather than kind of keeping it in and being prideful of, you know, you know, I, I walk around and still do, you know, like a dude, like stoic and tough and blah, blah, blah. But when I was younger, the thought of being vulnerable or the thought of saying shit that would be seen as vulnerable or weak was terrifying to me. So um, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm 45 and, um, you know, I'm very, very open about my experiences in life. When, when you are, even now, you know, I know it's a situation where, you know, I mean, life, life comes at you every single day. When you are going through a rough patch. Yeah. What kind of action do you take to make sure you don't end up in that downward trajectory? It's it's very that's a good question because even though I'm I'm 11 years sober and I've spent a good period of that time, but 11 years sober and a good 15, 20 years working actively on myself, my my uh, go-to position is when I get depressed or fearful, I I I, I retreat. I don't want to talk to anyone, but I've been con- not conditioned, but I've been through the meetings and through professionals, I've been told to exercise. When, you're, when, you, when you want to retreat in your bedroom, as much as you want to retreat and as much as you don't want to fucking talk to anyone, get on the phone, talk to a friend, say, listen, dude, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm just, I'm just having one of those fucking days where I, I can't deal with it anymore. And, and, the, and more often, 99.9% of the time, the dude on the other line, at the end of the phone is there for you. He's saying, well, well it's okay, man. Let's just talk about it. You know, if your true your true buddies, your true mates will always always be there for you, no matter what. And so, that's what I do. So when I'm when I'm hitting those moments of darkness, and I have a lot of them, you know, it's just my it's just my brain. I've accepted that, you know. And, but I have coping mechanisms to 
to kind of work around them. And, and the, the biggest one is to talk to my friends. You're, you mentioned before you're a father. What, and you, know, you talked about you kind of subconsciously perhaps following, however it happened, you talked about you following a little in your father's footsteps. When you think about your sons, how, how do you want them to grow up? Well, I want them to see me not only as their father, but their best friend, their mate. And that's the, that's the relationship that I have with my, with my boys. It's, um, you know, I had, that, I had that discussion with my son. You know, he's 15. We talked about the birds and the bees and you wear that Johnny. You fucking, I know that, I know at some point you're going you're gonna to drink, you're going to take a joint, you're going to do that shit. That's all good, man. You know, and I just said to him, you need to do this shit. But let me tell you my story. And I sat him down for an hour and I talked about my life and shit. And at the end of it, he looked at me and went, whoa. You know, so I mean, I think that's all we can do as parents is um, I think if you enforce a kind of strict rule on them, there's more chance of rebellion. And that just creates curiosity more than anything else. And I think if you're just, uh, if you tell them your side of things, and that's how I do with my boys. You know, I'm just very honest with them and, and my girls as well, you know. So I did a lot of fucked up shit. I made a lot of mistakes. And, and I tell my boys that. I tell them all the mistakes I fucking did. So that's the kind of thing that I missed, not having a dad. I didn't have that, that, uh, that, uh, I didn't have that example, that, that, that guy that I could go to and say, Dad, look, I did this. And for him to, for, I didn't have that, 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 resonant, that, that voice that said, dude, don't worry about it. I did the same fucking thing. It's okay. Look at me. I'm all right. Life's good. I didn't have that. So when I fucked up, I, was, I fucked up alone. And I just had to just deal with it myself. So when my boys fuck up, which they will, they can come to me and I'll just tell them, hey, man, I did that too. Don't worry about it. Mate, what was it? We're, we're talking here because we're on, on Movember 8. I, I should say that's the kind of thing that I guess any guy would hope for, that kind of relationship with their dad. You, yeah. You're certainly talking about a shift in what dads were to sons from when, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago to what dads are to sons now. You, you sound like you're very aware of the kind of, your boys are growing up into a world of not only alcohol and drugs, but also all kinds of internet porn at, available at their fingertips at any point in time, you know, and teaching them about not only the values of how they feel about themselves, but also their values towards women. You know, these are the sorts of things that never really were taught to, taught to men years ago. No, I agree. I think um, we're just, um, kids these days are so smart, you know? I mean, my youngest, I have twins, they're 11. They're 11 years old. When I was 11, I was so stupid, like, like I could barely write my name, you know, and kids today, they just know so much shit. And so if you're not on that train with them, you're just going to be, you're just going to allow them to get into so much fucking trouble, you know, and again, you have to be there as a guider, not as a, uh, 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 someone, I mean, my, my, again, my belief is that you know, you let them fuck up and you tell them it's okay because this is, this, this is life. You know, I, I, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's a different world. Fuck, it's a totally different world. But we, we talked about consequence at, uh, at high school. Obviously, you know, there has to be some kind of consequence, I'm sure, to their actions. How, how's that different? Well, it's, it's not different. I mean, um, I think providing just... It, it's, the, it's that whole thing, again, of, of allowing them to make, – making them realize that it's okay to fail, you know, and we learn from our failures. We, that's how we become 
better at what we do. It's how we become great as people. Um, I think what I'm trying to say is we have to learn what I'm trying to instill it with, or what I'm trying to provide to my kids in a way is not be so brutal on themselves because we're human beings. And it harks back to that question that you said earlier about social conditioning when I was younger at high school. You have to go to college. You got to do this. You got to do that. There's way too much emphasis on that, you know, and I've always said to my kids, I would much prefer that you study and work as hard as you can and you get zero out of 100 than not study and get 100 out of 100. I'd prefer the first option. So for me, it's all about work ethic and um, not results. Results come. I think it's just more the work ethic and, and, and being a, just a decent fucking human being, you know, yeah. and uh, not being a dick. <laughs> There's a T-shirt right there. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, mate, what was it? What was it that first drew you towards Movember, Tom? It was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was Jesse. He, uh, Jesse Fain, my good friend. Um, he introduced me to it. Uh, he told me about the concept, and I met um, you know the guys at Movember, and I just really fell in love with their uh, philosophy, and uh, and I love the fact that um, it was something for men. You know, women have always, not always, but but women are much more. Um, much more um, intrinsically open about stuff. They love to have a nap. They love to have the talk. And so there does seem to be a lot of support for women in that kind of world. Whereas for men, I couldn't really see any of it. And um, there's nothing better than having uh, role models to look up to. You know, uh, you know, you got you got you got your footy players. You got the AFL guys. You got you know, you get these kind of sportsmen and and just people who are just good dudes. Who are who are showing vulnerability, and showing and telling the, these young men that, look, depression, anxiety, fear—it's just part of life, and that's just the way it is. Just like being happy, just like succeeding, anger and happiness are two um, two emotions that have equal value and equal right, you know. And that's the kind of message that uh, we're trying to get to these guys. So hopefully, someone like me. Who, um, you know, who's the fucking dude, you know? And uh, it comes out and says, listen, suffered depression my whole life. I did this, I did that. It's just part of the way it is. It's just, it's okay. But it certainly sounds like while that is a part of your life, it's also a part of your life, the way you manage it and those conversations you have around it. That's, that's just a part of your day now. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, um, it all comes down to just being honest, man, and, and, and allowing yourself to be, um, vulnerable you know um we have to fight in life i'm not saying that we shouldn't fight we must fight but at the same time we also have to allow ourselves to be real the the more real we are it the easier it is for us to get help because people will pick up on you know they'll they'll say to you hey man you all right you feeling all right and if and for us to say obviously the go-to response yeah i'm fine if someone says to me these days, Dom, you're right, and if I'm feeling right, I'll say, Yeah, I'm feeling fine. But they say to me, Dom, you're right. I said, No, man, I'm fucking terrible. I feel like this, I'm going through that. And that is such a healthy way to look at life and to experience life. And it comes again, it comes back to being honest. I, what I, I really enjoy about the show is I get to talk to people who are living examples of having that kind of discipline of looking after themselves. When you look at your career, the, the work you've done on Prison Break, which a lot of people would know you for mostly, and I know you're about to you head into another project, which you can't quite talk about, but I'm sure people will find out about soon enough. How important is that discipline 
in your career? Do you think you'd have the career you have right now if you didn't have this kind of way of looking at yourself and, and the way your brain works? No, without a doubt. The answer is no. You know, for me personally, um, working on myself was, a, was an indirect gift. The, the, the depression, the anxieties, the fears, I've turned into things that have worked for me. As a result of experiencing all of those emotions, I've had to become disciplined. Because if, I, if, if discipline wasn't my, my go-to thing, um, I would collapse. I would cave in. I would implode. I would become that junkie. I would become that homeless dude on the street. I would become, I would be dead. All of these things. The, my only option was to get disciplined, get real, get honest, seek help. And that's discipline in itself. You know, and so I, I, I know my parameters. I know, I know the edges and I respect the edges and I have to work with, within those parameters because if I don't, um, I'm going to fuck up. I'm going to implode. Life's going to go to shit. I know that, you know, and, and part of that working, part of that uh, work ethic is, is, you know, I say to my boys that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself a bit of a rap here. So hold on, dudes, people listening in. I was a bit of an athlete when I was younger. I was really, you know, quite good. And I just didn't have the mental strength. I didn't believe in myself. I, didn't, I just didn't have that ability, that strength of mind. And I tell my boys who are great athletes themselves, um, you know, you got to have the right mental approach. you got to be strong. You have to be mentally disciplined in order to succeed as an athlete. Because there are a lot of athletes, there's so many talented dudes out there who are just brilliant athletes. But if your mind isn't up to speed, you know, you're not going to make it. I, I can't even, I think to, to say it's an honor and a privilege to have, have this conversation with you would be an understatement, Dom. Like, oh, thanks, man. There's not, I, I'm grateful that we've got this show going because this is the kind of conversation that I dreamed of having when we made this show. So, oh, brilliant. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very, very much. We finish all these conversations with the same three questions. Uh, yeah. In Movember, what kind of mo do you grow? It's, it's a big fucking Merv Hughes number. Can you describe who Merv Hughes is to people who aren't familiar with late 80s cricket players? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Merv Hughes is a fat athlete. <laughs> <laughs> and a really good one. It's the, it's the kind of moustache that I have the opinion that sport is generally better with moustaches. I agree. And Merv Hughes's moustache was, he was a fast bowler. So if you saw this man, he's six foot five or something. Oh, he's a monster, yeah. If you saw this man running at you about to deliver a ball at 110 kilometers an hour, yeah, yeah. that's one thing. But to do it with that moustache, terrifying. The moustache and the gut, it was priceless. <laughs> Him and Booney. I mean, see, that's the age that I grew up. Yeah. Where men were men. <laughs> and moustaches were that. When it comes to your mates, what's the thing that you appreciate most in your mates, Dom? Um, that they're there to tell me that I'm being a fucking idiot. They just call me out, you know. I think, I think a true friend gives you constructive criticism and you don't take it as offence. You know, you really listen to what they say. Uh, that's, that's a true friend. And a final question, if you could magically pick up your cell phone and speed dial 18-year-old Dom Purcell, what would you tell him? Um, I could be really funny, but I would, I'm not going to be funny. I would honestly say to him, relax, man. It's going to work out. You're, you're, you're good. 
Awesome. Mate, it's been an absolute privilege to speak with you today, Dom. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise, brother. All right, man. Have a great one. See ya. That was Dom Purcell. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. We'll be back next week with another episode. If you need to to fill in the time between now and then, you can find other episodes at movemberradio.com and find us on Facebook by searching Movember. This episode of Movember Radio was produced by myself, Osher Ginsberg, with Molly Hindman and Lavanya Nagendran. Special thanks to Jesse Fain for his help with Dom Purcell. Music was by Toe Hider and audio production was by the ever-fabulous Daryl Misson. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.